Dr. Greg Granger joins Billy West Live today. Dr. Granger, you're a professor at Northwestern State University. If you don't mind for our listeners, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your educational background. Okay, uh, it's good to be here. It's good to see you again, Billy. Uh, it's good to be back in the old uh, neighborhood again. Um, I have a PhD in political science from University of New Orleans. Uh, I am a, a Louisiana boy, I've been here my whole life. Uh, I've got a master's in history, so I teach both history and political science, uh, particularly uh, American foreign policy and international relations in general. And you and I, we've been friends a long time. We, we actually met the day after 9-11, and you, you know, it, it was such a shocking event for the country. And we had you on at the time doing an afternoon radio show, and you educated a lot of us about Al-Qaeda and bin Laden in particular. But, you know, that's how I got to know you. Mm -hmm. And I'd like for you to comment on, you know, what's happened since 9-11 as it relates to Al-Qaeda. And obviously killing bin Laden was a great thing for the mm -hmm. world. But what are your opinions about Al-Qaeda? Well, what's happened to Al-Qaeda in, in, in the last couple of decades, um, the, the assassination of bin Laden had something to do with this, but it was already going on, is that it's really splintered. It's become um, a whole bunch of local groups in Mali and Nigeria and Somalia and various areas have uh, previously not been tied to Al-Qaeda, but they decided to take an oath of loyalty to Al-Qaeda. And so they kind of pooled their resources and their ideas, and they're still very active. Um, it's, it's tragic in some of these countries, like Mali, a beautiful country. Uh, my wife and I used to want to go to a music festival they had in Mali, but we never got to go because of the damage that Mali is, uh, that Al-Qaeda has done to their, um, to their security. Uh, same in, in, in Nigeria, in Kenya, in Somalia. Uh, the, the United States does have active military engagement in these regions. 9-11, um, you're right, was, was such a shock. I was here in this building uh, getting ready to do the radio show on, you did mostly foreign policy stuff. And when that first plane hit, of course, we were thinking, well, a tragic accident, that must have been. Uh, then the second one hit, and I remember we pulled a little TV into the studio, kind of combined radio and television, so we could give on-the-spot uh, news and analysis. And, uh, of course, I went on to teach my classes that day. I was teaching a class in international law, and I even have students to this day. They're off in the world on their own now, but they remember that, and they remember the conversations we had. Um, so it's, it's going to be it's a generational struggle, and it's not going away. Um, ISIS, of course, is a, is a splinter off of Al-Qaeda, but uh, some of those people don't like each other and they fight against each other. Taliban, same thing. In some ways they cooperate, in some ways they're competitors. Um, terrorist groups are like pretty much any group. They want attention and they want funding, they want resources, they want to get their name in the news. And so, um, whether it's in Yemen, whether it's in Somalia, we're still seeing an important effort to try to, to, try to squash this, this ideology and, and, and these, uh, these desperate people who are quite violent, quite honestly. Is it just my impression, or what is your impression about Muslims in general, in, in the sense of radical Muslims, um, and the, the radicalism of Islam? Mm -hmm. uh, has that been tempered some by more moderate Muslims or not? Well, it's been, um, it's, it's pretty complicated. Uh, in, in some ways, it's been the military effort that has kind of quieted them down, uh, the, the deprivation of resources, the cutting off. One of the biggest things we've done uh, since 9-11 is cut off the financing, uh, go after banks, go after uh, underground type things where they, they get their funding. Uh, so that, that's helped a whole lot. Um, 
we have not seen a continued radicalization in the United States. Um, we've had local efforts in places like Minneapolis to try to uh, stem the tide of that. Um, we had lone wolf actors. We, even, we had, that, that's really where, where it evolved towards, is you, you get an individual who's very upset over something you saw in the news or something in his personal life, and will proclaim you know, loyalty to an idea or an organization like ISIS or Al-Qaeda, and then go out and take action. Uh, whether they actually have international connections or not depends on the situation. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're just just people who are desperate and, and upset and want to want to lash out. Um, so it's it has not gone away. But FBI, Homeland Security, they have definitely said in the last, let's say, 10 years, we have seen a shift in domestic actors in the United States. Really, it's the uh, kind of the white supremacist um, type of actor, the kind of hard, hard right um, uh, actors that we see. These are, you know, the QAnon type situation. These are considered national security threats. Uh, I wouldn't say more so than radicalized Islam. Um, I was going to ask you about QAnon and, and right-wing white supremacist groups. Are they the biggest threat to our national security and our democracy, or um, is it foreign actors? Well, I, I would say they're a large domestic threat to, to disrupt people's lives, to disrupt local politics, sometimes even as we saw Washington, D.C. itself. Um, internationally, I think... Um, uh, I think what we have seen in the last five, six years is a, uh, a pivot, you might say, to uh, the, the phrase that you hear a lot in Washington is the return to great power competition. Um, since 9-11, and honestly, you know, one of the things we talked about at 9-11, what should have happened 10 years before 9-11, right. when Al-Qaeda first, people forget, they first hit the World Trade Center in 1993. Right. And the Clinton administration just did not do enough about this. And they had several opportunities. They had several opportunities, and they hit the USS Cole, they hit the Cobar, they hit Did the, nothing uh, about the, the USS Cole. Not a whole lot, no. And so, I mean, we've, we've got classified documents that'll be coming out in, in the next few years. Maybe there's more to it than meets the eye, but the fact is the 1990s uh, were kind of a wash, kind of like in the 1980s, uh, the new group then known as Hezbollah. They kind of mopped the floor, you know, with the United States around the world, and Al-Qaeda did it in the 90s. Um, but since 9-11 especially, we've been focusing on what we call the non-state actor problem. Right. These, uh, whether it's a lone wolf, whether it's a small organization, whether it's a global network, uh, and some combination of those. These are transnational actors that go across borders, that have funding across borders, and members uh, but they don't have governments. Sometimes they get support from governments, but they're not governments. And governments, uh, the sovereign state is still very much the central actor in the world. So you're China, you're North Korea, you're Iran, you're Russia. Um, these have capabilities that Al-Qaeda does not have and likely will never have, or even ISIS or groups like that. So I would say, you know, we have a uh, political order problem. We have very disgruntled people in the United States, and some of them want to lash out violently. But in terms of saying what is the biggest threat to national security, um, you know, there I think we're returning to the great power competition situation. And um, I, I don't call it a new Cold War. I think things are just too different. As a matter of fact, I rarely even call the Cold War the Cold War anymore. I mean, because we're, we're realizing things by the 1970s were changing a great deal uh, in, in terms of how the world works and, and who was our threats and who was who are our allies. So, um, 
so I think that's that's really the up and coming issue now is returning to dealing with governments like China, like Russia. You, you mentioned the non-state actor. Uh, just in the last 48 hours, we've had this event, uh, maybe Friday afternoon, excuse me, but the, the event with the pipeline in Texas mm -hmm. that supplies energy to the East Coast. Uh, discussion about that being a non-state actor, but being supported by Russia. Right. So that's what exactly what you're talking. Can you explain the difference? What you mean by non-state actor, but mm -hmm. supported by Russia? Well, uh, that would be you know again a form of uh, state-sponsored terrorism or state-sponsored cyber terrorism, in which they do have, they get some of their legitimacy from the Putin administration. Um, Is there any doubt this was Russia? Are you hearing that in your back channel? Uh, that, that's really all I'm hearing, yeah. And uh, in terms of the capability, in terms of the strategy, in terms of the style, um, it, it really points towards these, uh, these organizations. And, you know, it allows Vladimir Putin, really, in, in a very cynical manner, to try to dodge accountability because he says, oh, well, and he did this before. He says, oh, it's just citizens. It's just people within Russia who happen to be doing these things. Well, number one, he's not doing anything about them. And number two, the suspicion is greatly that he, he absolutely has something. Nothing happens in Russia without his permission. And this is an extension of what, solar winds? And uh, that, that's a big part of that. We have the solar winds issue. You know, this really, we can start dating this back, in my view, um, to back when George W. Bush got to blame, just, just the timeline, back to 2006, when they started playing, Russia started playing cyber games against um, Georgia, the country of Georgia. And then they did the same thing with Ukraine before they moved in militarily. And this is, this is warfare these days. This is, um, this is, this is what we call war, to, or, or, or limited war. Um, you know, I, I have friends who for many years would always talk about the threat of, a, uh, of an EMP, an electromagnetic uh, pulse bomb that might hit the United States. That, that's old fashioned to me now. Uh, we've really moved into the cyber realm and they can do just as much damage with cyber. Uh, of course, so could we. And we have uh, capabilities, but what's kept very quiet in Washington is exactly what the United States does and doesn't do uh, in terms of, of the, some white people might say provoking, some people say reacting. Uh, to Russia and China and North Korea and Iran who have built out these capabilities. So, um, Is there any doubt in your mind, Dr. Granger, that we have people embedded in the Moscow electrical grid mm -hmm. uh, in Tehran where we have the capability to take out their power grids and we threaten that. It's almost mutually assured destruction to use a nuclear phrase. Right. But it is that we have those capabilities. Yes, yeah, they've demonstrated and we choose it. not to use them, correct? In um, a defensive posture? Or well, defensive now, posture? these are highly classified issues that, that sometimes we don't know what's happening, to be honest. I mean, you know, If you don't know, then yeah, nobody knows. Well, uh, I'm sure there's somebody deep in the Pentagon who does, but... Um, uh, that access to information doesn't go out to your normal everyday professors. Uh, and so, you know, I don't have a security clearance or anything like that. So uh, I, I think what we see is, um, is, uh, is a concern uh, that, we, that we're playing catch up. When, when in reality, we, you know, I, I think we have very strong capabilities. Um, and we probably use them to, to some effect. Uh, you're right about the grid situation. They've proven that they can do ours. We've proven that we can do theirs. And so now it's a who will take the next step. And, and what, what is considered one of the most difficult questions is in terms of responding to these things. Do we have to respond in kind? In other words, does a cyber 
attack have to be responded to with a cyber attack or can it be responded to with economic, diplomatic, or even military type of, of actions of a more traditional nature? And what combination of those? Um, other issues come up is what is proportional? If, right. we, if we don't want to go overboard in our reactions, what exactly is a proportional tit-for-tat kind of reaction? Provoke an even bigger response. Exactly. And we also, the United States is often concerned with trying to maintain itself within a, a rational kind of legal framework. So part of the issue is there is no real legal framework for cyberspace at the international level. It is the wild, wild west. And there's a lot of scholars out there who make a lot of sense saying, well, we need to build up an international law for cyberspace. But the fact is these actors, these state and non-state actors that we're talking about are in no mood to negotiate a legal standards. The internet has been such a blessing, mm -hmm. but also a curse right. in many ways to national security. Talk in general terms about what you see as the, the great benefits the internet provides, obviously to all of us every day, but also the challenge it presents to national security. Sure. Um, the biggest, uh, oh, I mean, you know, access to information, um, you know, organization, communication, all of this comes through with it. Uh, and we've seen over the last year with COVID um, just what it means and, and how important it is and how I think uh, to, to just dodge really quickly into a domestic issue, I really think having access to good internet usage is an infrastructure issue that we have to deal with. Um, my wife teaches high school, I teach college, we've both been online for the last year and a lot of these students really struggle with the technology and I think we need to make it like electricity. If you live in the United States, you can have access to this. Another uh, issue, so many, know, so many kids don't have access to the internet. And, and so, you know, so just to say, if we're going to build and continue an educated, advanced society, we've got to invest in those things. Now. Uh, the challenge, of course, the biggest challenge comes, and again, going back to what we call cyber threats and cyber operations, is what we call attribution, trying to figure out exactly who did what to whom and when, because there are so many ways to dodge accountability and to dodge attribution in terms of, uh, you know, going through all these servers all over the world and, and, and uh, uh, using disguised servers, using... Um, uh, third countries who may not even know it. There's just a lot of a lot of ways to get away with things, and that's the biggest issue. Is we want to make sure if we are responding to a threat that we're responding to the right people, right? And uh, otherwise, we can make a bigger mess. And so that's to me that's the biggest challenge is that it's easy to hide in something like the internet. Our guest has been Dr. Greg Granger. Join us next week for another special edition of Billy West Live where Dr. Greg Granger will discuss the hot-button issues and the ongoing dispute between the Israelis and Hamas.